Support for A Life of Dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Dogtra, trusted by professionals. Dogtra ensures your training journey with durable training products, equipped with patented, accurate, and intuitive control to ensure the best experience. Join us, and together we can make every dog exceptional. To learn more, call 888-811-9111 or visit dogtra.com. They got ambushed. They hit this compound. Um, they did a call out. They called the, the individuals out that were there. Um, an Afghan male came up to the assault force with his hands up and the lady ran out with a S vest on and blew herself up. It wounded a lot of people right there off the bat. But it wasn't like a um, hard structure wall. It was, it was, I think it was like, it looked like um, tarp or something. So it is like maximum effect when, when she blew up. And then there they had set up a bunch of like a daisy chain of IEDs, like a belt all over that field. So when they were like, running away or taking cover, there's IEDs there. And so a guy uh, ran off target. Um, this was before all the explosions happened. Before that, a guy, when, they, when the helicopter landed, a guy ran off the target. That's pretty much the favorite thing to hear. When there's a guy running off target, they're gonna use a dog for that. So you, you link up with all the um, required personnel to go on this, um, we call it squirter chase, so they get squirting from target. So he's running off target. Um, Hargis, which is the dog handler at the time, and his dog Yanni, they, um, he let his dog go. The guy was running away from him. And I forgot how close they were. He, he, he was talking to us about it. They were pretty close. They were, the dog was on the bite and they were like coming up to detain the individual. And the dog just, I guess, I don't know if the guy did it, or the dog initiated it, but the guy blew up, and the, the dog pretty much was gone right there. But, but I talked to like everybody was there. They're like, yeah, we were going up to get that guy. So saved uh, saved some lives. From a life of dogs, I'm Jason Ferguson, and this is 31 Kilo. Dogs utilized in warfare have a lengthy history, beginning in ancient times. Dogs of war were used by the Egyptians, Greeks, Persians, and the Romans. Among the Greeks and Romans, dogs served most often as sentries or patrols, though they were often taken into battle. Other civilizations used armored dogs to defend caravans or attack enemies. The Spanish conquistadors used dogs covered in armor that had been trained specifically to fight native people. The first official use of dogs for military purposes in the United States was during the Seminole Wars. Hounds were used in the American Civil War to protect, send messages, and guard prisoners. General Ulysses S. Grant described how entire packs of southern bloodhounds were destroyed by Union troops wherever they were found due to their ability to effectively hunt men. Dogs were also commonly used as mascots in American World War I propaganda and recruitment posters. Dogs have been officially serving as soldiers in the United States military since World War I. Known as MWDs, or military working dogs, they are trained for a variety of highly specialized tasks 
and actively contribute to U.S. combat operations. There are about 2,500 war dogs in service today, with about 700 serving at any given time overseas. Military working dogs are versatile, highly mobile, and have been proven to save the lives of U.S. soldiers in combat. When examining military working dog teams, an essential aspect that is often overlooked is that of the handler. I had the opportunity to sit down with some working dog handlers and gain some insight into the significance of this position that the U.S. Army refers to in its MOS listing as 31 kilo. This episode contains some terminology that may be unfamiliar to some listeners. IED is an improvised explosive device, a bomb created and deployed in a manner that is generally unconventional in military operations. S-Vest is a suicide vest that is typically worn by individuals used to create mass destruction and death. A squirter is someone assumed to be an enemy that flees from a military attack. In this episode, you will hear from Justin Edwards, a former dog handler from the U.S. Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion, who worked with two dogs and had several deployments with a Malinois named Bon. You'll also hear from Jarrett Hatley, a former dog handler that was in the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, and Infantry Division of the U.S. Marine Corps. Jarrett handled an explosive detection dog named Blue. We return to Justin Edwards, the handler who served in the Army's 3rd Battalion. I've always been interested in dogs. I love animals growing up and everything. And I was always trying to teach my dog how to sit, do stuff, like family pets. And then I got in Ranger Regiment, got in the Army, and uh, I was just like a private. I was in the Army for like a year or two. And I found out we, got, like, we had a dog section. And I was like, really? I was like, that's awesome. I want to do that. But you got to like pretty much pay your dues to even be able to have a chance to be in a dog handler. So I ended up, you know, served my four years, my initial four years that I was in, and I re-enlisted because I wanted to be a dog handler. So I, like, pretty much re-enlisted because I was going to do four years and get out and go to college. But once I found out the dog thing, I was like, no, I want to do that because I would see my target. I would say, that's so awesome. I want to do that. So I just did that and went to ranger school, you know, pretty much built it, built my, pretty much said that I was here, you know, built a good relationship with the unit and, uh, Told my platoons I had done my team leader time, so like was a leader. I had done the leadership thing, and my next step up was to be um, a squad leader and go from there. I told my platoon sergeant after doing my team leader time, I was like, I want to be a dog handler. He was like, Are you sure? You know, it's gonna slow down your progression. I was like, I understand. I don't plan to do like be in the army for the long haul. I just wanted to be a dog handler. Um, and I was like, I don't know. I just don't want to do anything else. Being a dog handler isn't an easy job. Justin describes what he believes is one of the most difficult parts of being a handler. I definitely wasn't the best handler the first two years I was a handler, but I became a senior handler um, and helped out the new guys. Always helped out the new guys. Always was there when they were doing detection, helping them through stuff. I think, I mean, it took me, actually took me a while to like understand how to read your dog, I guess. Now I look back on it, I don't know. How to comfortably read your dog. You can read your dog, but comfortably read them. And, like, when I could read Bond pretty good, so when I got uh, Fado, I could actually read. I didn't even work him that long, but I had watched Fado work for so long that I actually knew how he worked. Because we had other handlers that worked him. And I would try to watch as much as I could. That helped me a lot. I like watching 
videos of myself too. I watch videos of me handling dogs and kind of be like, oh, what was I doing right there? What the hell was I doing? Reading dogs, I think it's it's hard to be comf to comfortably read your dog. I think it's hard to feel confident. I guess. Learning to read and interpret a dog's behaviors is crucially important for any dog handler. We had the opportunity to talk with Jarrett Hatley, a former Marine Corps handler who gave us some first-hand insight into how critical this is. I think a good handler is somebody that knows how to read his dog and trusts his dog, knows what his dog can and can't do. And a good handler don't listen to other people when it comes to his dog. Um, on my deployment, there was one IED that my dog had um, found, but the IED was in the wall, and there was a ditch right beside the wall, and the way they indicated was I just laid down. And um, so my dog couldn't lay down, but he, he was working out in front of the patrol about 20 yards, and he just did a crazy change of behavior, just head turned, just right there. And I caught him straight back, and I told my lieutenant, I said, there's an IED in that wall somewhere. Well, like I talked about Marines not really knowing the dogs, all my lieutenant knew is he's supposed to lay down when he, when he finds an IED. And I said, well, he can't lay down, but he did a change of behavior, and I noticed it. And my, me and my lieutenant kind of got in a fight because he was wanting me to send the dog back out and make him lay down. And I'm like, no, I know there's something over there. I'm not sending my dog out to get hurt. And um, we called uh, EOD, and there was a 40-pound IED in the wall with uh, ammonium nitrate, aluminum powder, ball bearings, and roofing nails. So I think a good handler will tell even his higher-ups, you know, it's my dog, I know what he's doing, I'm not sending him back out. We often view dog handlers as people who work with dogs. But working with other people is an important function as well. We get to hear from both of these handlers about how essential this is. In my unit especially, it's always awesome to build a credible, you know, um, relationship with the people that you're going to be working for. Because you'd be working for a whole platoon, and you're sometimes the only dog handler on the ground. you got to be able to build a relationship with them and show them that if they want to utilize a dog, they can count on you. Um, it's, it's pretty nerve-wracking sometimes, you know, because those Marines are pretty much your brothers, and they're they're kind of dependent on you, you know, because I mean you're you're still a rifleman, but on the patrol your main job is to find the IEDs. The way I looked at it is those how many ever how many other ever Marines was on patrol with me, they're protecting me so I can protect them because I ain't got time to be keeping my eyes open for you know Terry Taliban hanging out over there in the woodline. I'm trying to focus on my dog. Um, so, you know, sometimes it wasn't that fun when you were, you know, pretty nervous because you don't, like you said, you don't want to miss a change of behavior and then just keep walking and your, you know, buddy three guys back gets his leg blowed off because you're messing around. So, yes, yeah, definitely not fun sometimes, it's, but it's rewarding at the same time when you can make fines or, you know, hopefully don't find anything at all and everybody comes back safe. So, yeah, it, it goes both ways. As these guys explain, creating relationships with fellow soldiers is important to the mission. Jarrett goes on to explain that when dog handlers reach out to others, it can be just as advantageous. But inter like interacting with other people, um, you know, being in Afghanistan is not all about, all about the firefights. 
and we always had an interpreter with us on every patrol and 90 percent of afghan people have never seen a labrador retriever so they're just all about it kind of just brushing them off not interacting with them you're kind of going the other way on that one because um, i mean you're on an eight-hour patrol you're going to take a couple breaks and hang out find some trees to sit up under and there's always locals out there farming and they'll come talk to you and if you're nice to them 90 percent of the time they'll be nice back to you but yeah they were just crazy about the dogs especially the kids which got in trouble you know sometimes because the kids would want to throw rocks not at the dog but for the dog and him being a lab he would want to go out and run and pick them up and bring them back um so i think that plays a big part the the handler interacting with people you know probably goes with police canine handlers too you know because those are the people you really need to be your friend you know in afghanistan seven months i'm never gonna see those people again but if if you just kind of brush them off you know it's a whole different culture they might really make them mad then two weeks later when they put an ied in the road they're not going to let you know about it so i think i think that plays a big role we actually had a guy it, it was a guy we patrolled by his house almost every day and he would come out and talk to us and we would talk to him and it, he had like four big pot plants growing out in his backyard that you know because it's legal there and he would he would try to give it to us and we're like sir we, we can't do this but he was he was nice and um th there was one time uh the taliban had put in an ied uh right on the middle of the road probably 100 yards from his house and uh we patrolled by his house and he's like hey guys there's an ied down there you know he was he told us about it and everything um you know looking back if we wouldn't have uh, interacted with him just kind of made man gone you know, he might have not told us about that, and we might have never found it, might have lost Marines. So, you know, I think the hearts and minds plays a big role. I know it's not the stuff they put in the war movies, you know, but I think it's a big part. As Jarrett mentions, it's not the stuff that they put in the war movies, but sometimes as a handler, you can find yourself in a situation that's exactly like a war movie. We're going after pre—actually, it was like a normal target we were going after, but we ended up finding one of the guys on target was that was there at the time after the mission was over. We found out he was pretty high up. We're going to target as quiet as can be. You know, me and Bond are out front, um, just walking along these trails in the mountains of northern Afghanistan. Walking, we get to this compound, and uh, me and EOD went up to the front. Had Bond on a long line, had him search the front um, where we to put the ladders at to get on top of the building, just to have eyes on it everywhere. Get Bond up there, and I pull him back. EOD's like, oh, yeah, we're good. We're, I'm just taking a knee right there. And we have Afghan guys with us that are in our assault force. And one of the guys steps on, like, a bunch of pots and pans. <laughs> it's just like, and this is, like, in a valley, so it's loud as shit. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm out. I'm out of here. So I, like... Bring a snatch up bond, put him in my hip lead, and uh, go to this corner where nobody was watching. And there's, it was looking into like an animal pen, and there's like an archway going. I, it's kind of hard to explain. It was just looking at an animal pen, and there was a doorway to my left, and I was just sitting there. And they start, they start calling out the compound. They're like pretty much saying like, "Hey, we're here. Get out. Come out with your hands up." And about that time, I look down, and the bond's going like crazy. It's, bullhorn going off I look down at Bond I look back up and this guy's like coming out of the door running or he's 
walking towards the archway, but I couldn't see what was in his hands. I just saw like he was kind of like tactically moving, and he had something in his hands. And there's a look like a chest rack on his back, and I was just like, "Wodorega," which means stop in uh, Pashtu. Wodorega, and he kind of sped up, so I just put my gun on fire and shot. I had stitched him up. Um, pretty much from like his lower back, I know it hit him. From his lower back up, up his back, and he fell to the right inside of the compound, and he started shooting back at me. I don't know if it was going like by my head or anything. It was pretty crazy. It all happened like pretty quick. So me and Bonner were sitting there, I'm just engaging this guy. I don't know if anybody else is gonna come out of the door to my left. So finally, more people come, come on top of me, and I have a suppressor on to help the dog out. These three guys come on top of me and they're shooting that suppressor. That's loud. And uh, the guy finally stopped firing. He started shooting in the air. So we didn't know like what to do. We're you know, calling all sorts, but we're trying to get approval to you know, throw grenades and stuff. And the ROE over, overseas at the time was like ridiculous. So we finally cleared the compound to the left. Nobody wanted to go past that door. Like, nobody wanted to go past that doorway to the left until we cleared that room. We didn't know what was inside there. So that took forever to even get to even get like the, our Afghan commandos to go inside that compound because they were just scared. And I didn't want to send, I mean, we had no reason to send Bond because there was, this is a room. The guy that came out of there was, you know, bad guy and like the Afghans didn't want to go in there. We're like pretty much getting pretty upset at that time. So they ended up going there, they cleared it, got that clear. There's two people in there. They ended up IDing that guy that got shot pretty like this, uh, pretty high value target that we were looking for for a while and um, I guess we, we ended up throwing a grenade my platoon started threw a grenade over the wall that the guy was behind that was shooting back at us and he tried to pull the thumb safety so the grenade didn't go off <laughs> so like it was like a whole string of like crap it was, it was horrible so we ended up um, the guy ended up crawling into like a because he wasn't dead but like they were asking me, did you shoot him? Did you shoot him? I'm like, yeah, I shot the, the shit out of him. I was like, he should be dead. Um, but a 5.56 round isn't that close range. It, I don't, I don't know. I guess the damage, it could kill you, but I think it'll, I think it'll bleed out, whatever. But um, he ended up crawling into like a little animal enclosure inside the animal pen. It was like pretty much a building in the corner. And we were trying to get approval to like put a wall charge on there and blow the wall, throw a grenade inside there and kill him. Um, all sorts of stuff. It all got like turned down. So they're pretty much the last resort came was to like to put my dog in the building. And I was like, well, that guy is armed, still alive. We're gonna lose my dog, and then then what? But uh, yeah, so he was like, you seen your dog? I was like, I told him that, and I was like, no, if I send my dog, he's just gonna end up getting shot, and then. We'll have a dead dog or a wounded dog. And so I was like, "Can we like soften, soften it up? Throw grenades in there or something?" He was like, "He's like, oh, okay, let me check." He went to check, and I was like, "Oh god, this sucks." <laughs> and why? The, like this guy is probably you know doing whatever. Wait, well, he's bleeding out pretty much. <laughs> Cause everybody's like, "Keeps on coming." They're like, "You sure you shot him?" I'm like, they're giving me a hard time. And I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> so um, we had already lost two dogs at deployment. One was the same circumstance. We sent a dog into a building, got shot. And that was my best friend's dog, so he took that pretty hard. And then we lost another dog. Um, squirter ran away at S-Fest on. We sent the dog. Dog 
I guess, detonated the S-Vest somehow during the scuffle. S-Vest went off, blew the dog up. But, I mean, he saved a bunch of people's lives. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to send him. So, yeah. sure enough, he comes back, he's like, you gotta send your dog. I was like, shit. Because <laughs> I knew it was gonna happen. So, we have like cameras, we have a camera system put on the dog and put the camera system on Bond. I have the screen on my uh, chest. And then I pretty much give my uh, platoon sergeant a rundown on how to use the red lasers and because I'm like have all this fumbling around with all this shit. <laughs> got my gun ready, got my, this camera. So I like pretty much show him, I'm like just pretty much make it pray to that door. And I'll give him the command and go and find him. So get set up, pretty much, I pretty much say bye to him. Platoon sergeant puts laser up there, I send Bonnie, he was kind of, he did it too fast at first. He was like, Phew, just shot it up there as quick as good. But uh, he got a hold of the laser, went on the, went up to the door, was sniffing around. There's there's like pretty much a blood trail going around this courtyard because he he curtained he curtained the wall around to this stairwell. Um, then Bond was a sniff around the door for a little bit, broke the plane, and then he was in there for a little bit. I saw a scuffle on the camera. And then there's so much dust, and then I heard like six or seven gunshots. And I was like, oh shit. And it was pretty much, it was quick. And I immediately did a recall. I was like, Bond, here, here. And there was just a new ROE that came out. Literally, like, this is the first mission that was ran by special operations, I'm pretty sure, to my knowledge. An ROE came out that week that said American forces cannot enter the compounds, enter Afghan compounds, but the dog was an exception, so you could send a dog in. So if he ended up getting uh, shot and was in there, we couldn't even go get him, probably. I, I, I would have. I would have gone there. I probably got in trouble, but I would have gone in there and got my dog. And he didn't come first, and then I saw him shoot. He just shot out of the door, just <laughs> shot out of the door, came running back to me. I scooped him up. We did a quick, uh, I did a quick blood sweep of him, and I was like pretty, I was in shock that he wasn't even shot once. And we had a, we had a sniper on the wall, on a, on a mountain, looking inside the doorway. He couldn't see the guy, but he saw the dog go in there. He thought there's like shot, like gunshots going up all around him. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was pretty much like the craziest thing. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts from across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin and the nutritional solutions they have to offer your dogs, Visit them online at royalcanon.com. Astute trainers with proper training tools are the key to unleashing your dog's full potential. For over 30 years, Dr. has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and ball training to support dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Trusted by professional dog trainers, canine officers, and hunters, Dr. enhances your training journey with durable training products Equipped with patented, accurate, and intuitive control to ensure the best experience. Join us together as we can make every dog exceptional. Learn more online at dogtra.com. Bond shot out of the door and came running back after Justin thought he was gone forever. 
As I found out sometime later, Justin actually lost contact with Bond again. Bond, the Malinois, actually got out of the military before Justin. Soon after his retirement, Bond was donated by the U.S. military to Pine Mountain Police Department in Georgia to be used to respond to active shooter situations. Well, Bond actually, when he, when we retired him, I was still in, and he went to uh, a police department, Pine Mountain Police Department, after they after I had already told like everybody like the guy looked dogs old, um, he wasn't really like working as good. He wasn't working as good as he used to, and. They were telling me, yeah, you'll probably be able to get them when you get out. But they ended up, you know, sending them to a Pine Mountain Police Department, which was probably 30 miles north of Columbus, 20 miles north of Columbus, Georgia. And um, my girlfriend caught a lot of that. <laughs> she wasn't, she was pretty upset. So she went behind my back in a good way. She went behind my back to, and linked up with the AHA, the American Humane Association, and they pretty much... At first, the Pine Mountain Police Department was not on board with it. They were pretty much they were going to use him for uh, uh, active shooter dog, which Pine Mountain, Georgia. If you ever heard of that place, it's like, and it's like the middle of nowhere, Georgia. I don't know what you need an active shooter dog for. But uh, they at first they weren't on board with it, but then AHA linked up with them and pretty much told them that. We'll get if you give us this dog, we'll get we'll give you the ass, like enough assets to get another dog for your department. So that's John Bond came to me. Up next, we hear how Jarrett and his dog ended up on a bizarre hunt for an IED that belonged to a mechanic with an unusual bomb-making signature. We were on patrol and. My dog was out in front of the patrol working, and we we were on kind of a, a main supply route, um, and we were searching houses with the Afghan army, um, and some locals came to us and, and told our interpreter that they had found found an IED out in the field. Um, so we went to go check it out. And they, they said the IED was in the field, but they didn't know where it was. They just said that they knew it was in the field somewhere. So I was working my dogs in the field, and I, I took two other Marines with me to provide security for me because that was a little weird that they had just, hey, there's an IED out there, but we don't know where it is, and you need to go find it. In talking to Jared about this mission, he describes it as a bit of an unorthodox Easter egg hunt for an IED. So I was in this open, like, cut wheat field, and uh, working my dog, and I had two other uh, two other Marines posting security for me. And um, they had said it was in in a field. Well, come to find out, I don't know if it was like a a, a gang, you know, like a rival gang, a rival Taliban kind of thing. But we were looking for the IED in the field. Well, come to find out, there was a guy that had his own motorcycle repair shop kind of kind of deal and he was making IEDs in his motorcycle repair shop well those guys was also making IEDs so uh, they sent us over to that I, I guess so he would get in trouble not them well we found his this IED and it had um, a bunch of motorcycle chain links you know that was the shrapnel I guess he was using and we couldn't prove it was that guy just because he owned his own shop 
and we told him, hey man, if if we find any more IEDs with motorcycle chain parts in it, you know, it ain't gonna be good. Um, well, a couple weeks later, we took uh, took some pop shots from that guy's house, um, and we didn't return fire or anything because it was only like probably five or ten shots. Well, we found another ID with motorcycle chain parts in it, and uh, we went to that guy's house where all you know his shop was, and didn't really find any um, ID making material. But we found bags of just black tar heroin and stuff, and uh, the guy wasn't home. Since the guy wasn't home, Jared explains that he and his team took some time to make sure that the guy was quickly out of the drug and bomb making business. As you can see, these handlers had a pretty interesting perspective of the job, as most handlers do. During my conversations with them, I was interested in getting to the bottom of a question I've been seeking the answer to for some time. The question is, what makes a great dog handler? In my experience as a trainer, handler, and canine unit supervisor, I've had the opportunity to work with a vast number of dog handlers over the years. And honestly, some were a lot better than others. Trying to understand the characteristics of a good canine handler is about as complicated as aiming to figure out the creation and purpose of Stonehenge in England. See, we, don't, we really don't, never had a day off um, unless, you know, we wake up, um, sleep during the night, or sleep during the day, wake up, and if we had a mission to go out on that night, we'd, you know, gear up and go. But sometimes you don't get that for a while. It just depends what they're looking at. Um, for the most part, for a day off, I wouldn't even take a day off. I would just use my day off to train my dog. It's hard sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have, you don't want to do stuff all, all the time. But I couldn't leave my dog sitting in a kennel all day and not even take him out to, you know, run him or play fetch with him or do something with him. You know, because well, being in the military in general or a police officer, but especially being a dog handler, that's not a not a nine to five kind of thing you know you always got to be working with your dog um especially on deployment when you're with him for seven months you can't just put him in his kennel and then you go take a nap you gotta you know even just just the bonding time and the training when you're not on patrol with him working him one thing's for sure being a dog handler is really hard work one common characteristic that both of these former handlers identified as a trait of good handlers is the willingness to accept constructive criticism and learn from it to improve upon your performance. I don't know, I think, I think a lot of the guys, you know, you need to take, be able to take um, constructive criticism and like go there and not get too mad, which a lot of people do. When, when they get critiqued on something they did wrong, a lot of them don't follow up and try to improve that. It's not always hummingbirds and butterfly kisses, you know, uh, being a military dog handler or a, a police canine handler when you're out there in the field. So uh, I like constructive criticism. You know, I know some people don't. Um, but I think hard training, you know, having a lot to take in and constructive criticism it's going to make you better in the long run, you know, because being in the field, you got people shooting at you, or if you're a police canine handler, you got people trying to fight you because they know they got 
drugs in the car and you're going to wind up finding them. So I, I think, I think it makes better handlers um, going through a, I'm not going to say harder, harder school, but one that that the instructors, if if you make a mistake, the instructors is like, hey, you did this, you, they fix you, you know, they're they're kind of harder on you instead of the instructors just want to hurt and get off and go home and drink beer. So they're like, yeah, man, good job. And then you go out and do it in the field and you get yourself killed or somebody else killed. So I think a harder school and constructive criticism is a good thing for dog handlers. Another similarity good handlers have is the ability to accept mistakes and laugh at yourself. As a handler, it's inevitable that mistakes will be made and it's important not to beat yourself up over it. Jarrett Hatley explains further while recounting the first bomb find his dog Blue had while in country. At the, at the beginning, of our deployment, um, it it turned out to be good. I sent my dog out and he indicated, so I caught him right back, gave him his Kong as a reward. I was excited about it because it was you know his first find in country, and uh, I was telling the patrol leader about it. He's like, send him back out. And I was like, okay, send him back out. Come to find out, there was nothing there. He was just laying down in a puddle because <laughs> he was hot. So thank God there was nothing there, you know. But uh, that was the stupidest thing I've ever done. Probably sending him back out twice. There was a bunch of times where I would get him worked up before we went out on patrol when we were doing our um, pre-combat checks and pre-combat inspections. And I'd be up there playing tug with him or something, you know. I know it probably wasn't a good idea, but we were bored, we had, you know, nothing to do. And then we'd go out on patrol and i send him out because he, he only worked off lead, um, you know, explosives. He'd be out there a pretty good ways. And we would step outside the wire and as soon as we got out, I, I tell him to hunt it up, and he would just work the whole time. And there was a couple patrols that he would bring back trash water bottles, just wanting to keep playing tug. And I kind of had to laugh that off to a certain extent because he couldn't be finding water bottles. He had to be looking for explosives. But if you got a handler that gets mad at his dog and is heavy-handed with a dog like that, you know, the dog's probably not going to want to look for him. And if your dog's not working for you, then you're not doing your job. You're not keeping Marines safe. So, yeah, you got to have a, I think you got to have a pretty good sense of humor about it. I mean, sometimes he made me mad, but I didn't want him to know that because he'd be like, I'm not working for this guy. So, yeah, I think it plays a big role. In our quest to find out what makes a great dog handler, sometimes we've got to identify those traits of the bad ones. Unmotivated just wanted to be a dog handler because I thought it might, I, I guess, set them apart from the other Marines. There was Marines with us, it'd be time to go on patrol and they would just be lazy and they would use their dogs to get out of patrol be like, oh, my dog's not feeling good. Because they told us, as as the handler, it's, it's, it's your call, you know, to, to say that your dog's sick or not feeling good. Well, there was a couple of handlers with us, we'd be going out on a 10 hour night patrol and you want to lay in your rack and watch movies, so you tell them that your dog's sick. Just, I think a bad handler is just, just unmotivated. Don't, don't care about their dog. Don't want to bond with their dog. Just get done working them, throwing them in a crate. And um, somebody that's not good at reading their dog, and just don't, don't want to better themselves. Being a dog handler and working the dog, and the most part. A bad dog handler is one that thinks he's a dog trainer. 
I saw that a lot. Not putting forth 110% effort during training. Um, not asking questions. Attention to detail is huge in dog handling. I think you just got to know when to you know, utilize something and when to not utilize the dog in a certain way, as you guys know. Um, and a lot of guys didn't want to put forth the effort to, you know, make a credible relationship with the platoon they were working for. There was guys, um, one one handler in my battalion that comes to mind, his his dad was a, a vet. Not a dog trainer, not a dog handler. And that kid thought that that he was a trainer, I guess just from his dad being a vet. And our instructors used to get on him all the time because they would tell us one thing and he, he would have something to say about it every time. And even though they taught us that way to do it, he would do it different than the instructors told him and he would, he would do it completely wrong. And he would always go back like, well, my dad's a vet, so I, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. Not being proactive, being lazy, just being lazy. I mean, we're all fault sometimes being lazy, but just overly, like, just, because a lot of guys that came to our canine uh, section from where I came from, they use that, it's like, a lot of them are getting out of the Army. I re-enlisted to be a canine, a dog handler. A lot of people are just, like, in their time in the Army, and they have, like, two years left where they send them to the canine section or, you know, get them out of the platoons, the lion squads. They would send them there, and they would just, like, kind of, they wouldn't even deploy. They would just train dogs and, like, get out of the Army. During my time with these handlers, motivation and a genuine love for dogs was a trait that consistently came up in the conversation. When I became a dog, when we become dog handlers in the Ranger Regiment, um, you're not just like a, somebody that just came in the Army. You had been, and I, would, I was already in for over six years. So, I didn't want to, you didn't have to have your hand held all the time. You're in a canine section was pretty much made of, of all NCOs, which are, had been in the Army for more than four years, three to four years. So, I mean, being independent comes with um, building a credible relationship with your platoon sergeant or the people you're working with, your uh, higher-ups pretty much. Um, that comes even on target, you know, finding something. If you're not doing anything, there's all this stuff going on in overseas. I'm going to take my dog over here and search this barn or... I'm going to take my dog over here and, you know, pull security. We're not to do anything, but... And I would always bring a drop drop hide with me um, overseas. I'd, I'd grab somebody, tell them to go hide it in this room, let it sit there for however long, after they already cleared the room, of course. Um, let it sit there for however long, and then I'd go, you know, do training on target. Because I didn't want to go out and all these targets on my dog, nothing has them with my dog, so... And independence, too, coming with, comes with training. Um... You got to know how to do training by yourself as well. Just take your dog out, you know, have somebody lay a trail for you, or be, be proactive in the training too. Say overseas, we try to jump in with their training. Um, if they want to do training, like say they're practicing room clears overseas, or you know, they're just hanging in the hooch. Just bring my dog in there sometimes to hang out with them. Uh, the hooch meaning just um, like their rooms or whatever. Um, go in there, bring your dog in there, hang out with the platoon. Um, different guys from the platoon. Um, just try to integrate the dog as much as you can into, into the assault force. The good dog handlers with 3-3 that I saw was guys that were kind of standout guys. Guys that wanted to not only be riflemen like we were and engage the enemy, but 
be able to bring something else, you know, finding IDs, keeping other Marines safe. So guys that kind of want to do a little bit more than just our actual job, you know, just you're also protecting, you know, these civilians, kids out playing around, running up and down the roads. So like as far as characteristics of the guys went, I would say guys that wanted to do more than our actual job was, you know, to go above and beyond what our uh, job requirements were. They're always proactive, constantly wanted to train their dog if they weren't doing anything, no downtime really. Um, always working to improve their dog. Um, don't blame your dog on everything that goes wrong in a scenario. It's a lot of it's a lot of guys do. Sometimes they don't set their set their dog up for success as well, and because they don't understand the problem themselves, um, or you know they don't ask questions. Or I think it's the main thing comes down is this training in general. It's just, you got to put forth the effort to get the, the a product that's worth the damn. But once I got there and started working with the dogs, because that's the first time I've ever seen seen dogs working, you know, like um, military working dogs. And uh, by the end of it, I was just in love with it. I loved watching them work. What makes someone decide to be a dog handler? More importantly, what makes them love this work so much that they continue to commit themselves to it, even in some pretty harsh situations? What makes someone want to work with a dog so much that they are willing to put themselves in harm's way repetitively? Of the thousands of handlers I've met over the years, they're all significantly unique people. It's clear that it takes an exceptional kind of person to be a great dog handler. Is there a single thread that makes them all the same in some way? A Life of Dogs is brought to you through the support of Highland Canine Training, offering professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Learn more at www.highlandcanine.com. Thanks for tuning in once again to A Life of Dogs. We want to send a special thanks to Justin Edwards and Jarrett Hatley for sharing their stories with us, and I hope that you enjoyed them. We'd like to dedicate this episode to all the fallen working dog handlers and dogs who have served in the U.S. military. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode, and if you hadn't already, subscribe through our website or most podcast apps. By the way, if you haven't gone over and checked out Working Dog Radio's podcast, be sure to do so. And listen to episode number 10, where I'm featured talking about detection, dog training, and some other cool things. Music for this episode comes from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. <laughs>